Good morning, everybody. I am grateful that you are here, and we are in week three of our series called Refocus. This is our vision series for 2021, and I'm really looking forward to what God is going to do in the life of our church in 2021. As we talk about refocusing and everything that happened in 2020 and then now going into 2021, what does it really call for us? What is this season in this culture? What does it call for us to be? So what we've done the last two weeks is we've talked about this idea of faithfulness and talking about how faithfulness originates with God and then ultimately we need to prove to be worthy of having the faith that God has given us. So this is what we've talked about so far. Uh, I want you to know that I apologize for not being able to be here uh, with you live, but we just thought that it was best. I'm on pseudo-quarantine. I'm not officially supposed to be quarantined or have to be quarantined, but pseudo-quarantine. thought it best just to, to be uh, just overly cautious, if you will, and to sit out because I had exposure to AJ. So, um, so I'm grateful that you're here and that we're still in our series called Refocus. And I just invite you to open your Bible into Genesis 39. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in this passage, and this is, we're going to read the whole chapter up front. And I want you to know that this is going to be familiar for some of you, because this is the, some of the storyline of Joseph and what happened with his brothers. And just in case you don't know much about Joseph, I'll get you caught up before we get into this passage. Joseph was, uh, was a, a great man, and he, was, uh, he turned out to be a great man, but he was just a boy uh, when the, really the things that happened in his family that, that God used to position him to be where he is in our passage. And at the age of 17, he's actually cast out by his brothers. His brothers were envious and jealous of him. He himself had found out that he had this, these specific gifts and dreams and interpreting of dreams. And he was like a, a kid at, at Christmas who just gets a toy and wants to talk about that toy all the time. And Joseph was just exuberant, and he was just excited about this new gift that he had. And he went and shared this gift with his brothers and with his dad, and they simply didn't get it. They didn't understand. His dad paused for a little bit, and he, was, he just was trying to figure out what in the world Joseph's talking about, and his brothers weren't having it. As a matter of fact, so much so his brothers weren't having it where they actually conspired to kill him. Uh, and then after one of the brothers stepped in, he says, no, 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 let's not kill him. They decided that they would actually sell him into slavery. And then the, the plot is, is so twisted that then the brothers dip Joseph's coat of many colors. Some of you are familiar with this. They, they dip his coat in some blood and then take it back to the dad to tell the dad, hey, look, uh, Joseph died and he didn't die. They just sold him into slavery. But what we see in this passage in Genesis 39 is we see how, how God's mission and how God's work is just so preeminent in Joseph's story that Joseph's faithfulness then bears fruit not only in his life but other people's lives and what we're going to see is how Joseph is the one who's going to be ultimately after this passage if you were to continue reading in Genesis that he's going to be the person who would be a deliverer for the people of God so it's an amazing story and we're just going to kind of jump right into This part of the story in chapter 39, starting in verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. 
When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he had, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all of that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in his house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her and even be with her. Verse 11, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants, look, This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him, and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison guard. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those who... who, or those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything he did. Of course, that's a common theme throughout this whole chapter is the Lord gave Joseph success in everything that he did. And not only did he, they give him success, he also, the Lord gave favor with those under Joseph's care. This is a, a common theme throughout this, this whole chapter and, and this section of Joseph's life. Uh, so let me back up just for a moment, and I, I just want to connect some dots with you. In week one, we talked about how faith is founded in a life connected with God. That's what we talked about in week one. Faith is founded in a life connected with God. And then last week we explored this idea, this truth, this reality. The faithfulness is refined in the quarry of life's testing. And so it is shaped, or it is, it is refined in the quarry of life's testing. And we are all in the middle of a gigantic test right now. And ultimately, Joseph, we're reading Joseph's story, he's in the middle of a test. Just a profound test. A test to see if he's going to be worthy of the faith that he has. 
in the Lord. And we know because we just read the story, this section of the story, that he did it well. And the Lord gave him favor. I want us to, to look at this, and I'm going to connect some things here, and I'm going to take maybe a little roundabout approach, and then ultimately what we're going to do is we're going to settle on the middle section of the passage that we just had gone through. But I want to start with this idea. Because if we're going to be faithful people moving forward, not just because of what happened in 2020 or 2021, if we're just going to be faithful people and faithful to the mission and call of God in our lives, we have to have a morality that's based off good theology. And this is what we see with Joseph. Joseph's theology shapes his morality. He would not even be around uh, the woman because she was a married woman. He wouldn't even be there. He was, he was trying to make himself busy and do everything that he could to avoid that, that situation. Joseph's theology shaped his morality. The same needs to be true of us. Some of you don't know what morality is. You maybe have heard the term or you've, you, you have this idea of what morality is. So I want to talk about morality just briefly in three different ways. Uh, for one, I just wanted to define it. And morality is this. It's just, uh, you can find this in any dictionary. Morality is a code of conduct used to decide right from wrong. That's what it is. Morality is a code of conduct used to decide right from wrong pretty clear. Under the banner of morality, there's two main categories of morality, and then we're going to talk about a subset of one of those. Uh, one of the, 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 the main categories of morality is subjective morality, and it, it believes this, that morals are all, man, are all human-made and can vary from person to person. This is shaped by Mainstream media, lawmakers, college professors, policies, social networks, or identity politics. If you scratch your head about what's going on in the world right now, the reason why you're scratching your head is because maybe you're looking at this from a different moral standpoint. They're looking at the world, the culture around us, those who are fallen, not in Christ, and, and even some of those who are not discipled in Christ, they have a subjective morality. It's not been informed by God, which we're going to get to in a minute. Instead, it's just shaped by mainstream media, lawmakers, professors, policies uh, uh, that lawmakers make, or social networks, or identity politics. And you may be scratching your head to say, this world is going crazy. Actually, this world is playing by the same script that it's been living on for a very long time, but now it's just so counter to the Christian faith that we're noticing. Something that more aligns with the Christian faith is not subjective morality because that's, this is the idea that all morals are all human-made and can vary from person to person. But the second main category is this. It's objective morality. It believes this. Morals are a fixed standard that exists beyond human opinion and judgment and are therefore universal to all human beings. So it is this idea that there is an objective truth that all human beings need to live by, and that it's a fixed standard of truth. That it's a fixed standard of truth. So we talked about subjective morality. It's, it's subjective to a bunch of different things in human opinion. Objective morality is, is the belief that there is, that there is an app, there is a truth that is absolute, or there is a truth, and that truth is, is the preeminent feature of which all morality is based. A subset of objective morality is Christian morality. Christian morality 
as I define it, is this. God is the origin of morals and values, and followers of Christ live under the authority of the Word of God. This is the centerpiece, or at least it should be, the centerpiece of a Christian's belief and value. That God is the origin of all of, of our morals. He is the origin of, of our values and that followers of Jesus, they live under the authority of the Word of God. That means that everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we type needs to be filtered through the Word of God. Because the Word of God is the very basis of which our morality comes from if we're indeed in Christ. We see that Joseph, he lived under the authority of God, and we see this in the text. He identifies sin for what it is. He identifies sin being against God. He understands that there is a truth that he is living by, and it's not his emotions, it's not his whims, it's not how he feels, it's not, he's not living by impulse. Subjective morality is, is this, it is so much uh, into, uh, I can just live by impulse, or I can live by, by whatever this group tends to think and whatever it believes, and I just need to follow suit with them because it's subjective to, to human opinion. But Christian morality is, is fixed, if you will. It's tethered to. The Word of God. And that every follower of Jesus are to be living under the authority of the Word of God. So for today, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to give you the application up front. And we're going to cycle back to this at the end of the talk, but I want to give you four application points up front. And then we're going to drill down into this passage. First point of application is this. Make trust in God your motivation. Make trust in God your motivation. Second thing, make temptation your adversary. Third, make truth your ally. And fourth, make faithfulness your testimony. Let me say it again. Make trust in God your motivation. Make temptation your adversary. Make truth your ally. Make faithfulness your testimony. Joseph is faithful. That's his testimony in this passage. He's motivated by a love of God and the authority of God. His, his temptation, it was, he could clearly identify what the temptation was, and he was not going to falter in it. And he was living by a truth that was not based off of his own whims and wishes or desires, but on God. In, in the passage, right at the beginning of the passage in verse 1, it says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, he bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Now Joseph's brothers had sold Joseph into slavery to the Ishmaelites. And now we see the hand of God moving Joseph to where God wants Joseph to be. So now he's with the Ishmaelites, but now he is sold from the Ishmaelites to Potiphar. Well, who is Potiphar? Potiphar, you can think of him as, when it says he's the captain of the guard, you can, you can think of it as he's the chief of police. 
or perhaps even a higher level than that. He was like Pharaoh's secret service. So he is, he is a high-level dignitary in the Egyptian government. This is who he is. And yet God conveniently placed Joseph right where he needed to be. It's an amazing thing if you think about it for very long at all. And it says this in verse 2, The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Now let's park it here for a minute, because we don't really think in these terms. We don't really sometimes even believe in these terms. To think that the Lord could be with Joseph and that he could prosper while he was in enemy territory. You see, what we tend to think is the only way we can prosper is if everything around us is going well. But things aren't going well for him. He's a slave. So he's enslaved first to the Ishmaelites and now to Potiphar. And yet it says in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. What we don't see in the passage is we don't see Joseph complaining to God about the situation that he's in. But yet it's God's will that he is exactly in this place. Instead, we see that it's God's will for him to be in this difficult place. But even while he's in the middle of it, he has favor with God. One would tend to believe that he's pressing into his relationship with God. And yet because of the work ethic that he has, he is being seen as successful and also he's bringing success to his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. That's a pretty interesting tell. That's what it says at the beginning of verse 3, when his, saw, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he had. Joseph found favor in, in his eyes and it became his attendant. By Joseph's trust in God and his hard work and the blessing from God, Joseph showed Potiphar that God was real. Let's follow back to that. Some of you missed it. By Joseph's trust in God, his hard work, his work ethic, he had a great theology of work, and the blessing of God, Joseph showed Potiphar that God was real. See, our bosses need to see the difference that Jesus makes in our lives by us doing honorable work. They should be looking at our work ethic and know that we have such a high level of integrity and character that's informed by God, by our, by our Christian morality, that our values are such a high level that we're going to be the very best employee and we're going to do honorable work just like Joseph. Even if we're in the middle of a situation we don't agree with or we're under an authority that we don't agree with, that we need to be people who have a great theology of work. And our bosses should be able to see the difference that Jesus is making in us even when we go to our workplace. In Colossians 3, 22 and 23, the Apostle Paul wrote something very profound and speaks into this idea and belief about a, the a theology of work, something I'm probably going to cover later in the year, but I will suffice it to say this from the passage Slaves, this is Paul's message to the church in Colossae. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it. 
not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and in reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, I, I, this is whatever you do, I love this. It doesn't matter what you do. He says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Oh, if you, do, if you wash dishes at work, you wash dishes to the glory of God. If you're an accountant, you do what accountants do to the glory of God. If you turn wrenches for a living, you turn wrenches to the glory of God. If you are a, an organizer, then you organize to the glory of God. If you're an educator, you educate to the glory of God. If you speak for a living, you speak to the glory of God. If you're someone who just does research for somebody else's work, you do that research for the glory of God. If you're retired, you serve God in your retirement to the glory of God. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Not because somebody's eye is on you or to even win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Eugene Peterson, he said this of of the passage of Matthew 10 and 16. I think at times like these, they, they require a certain way of looking at our work. We're going to develop a theology of work. And I love what Eugene Peterson says here. He talks about, about the work that we're doing. He says, stay alert. This is hazardous work I'm assigning you. You're going to be like sheep running through a wolf pack. Whoa. You're going to be like sheep running through a wolf pack. Not running away from, running through. So don't call attention to yourselves. Be as cunning as a snake and offensive as a dove. Be as cunning as a snake and inoffensive as a dove. Wow. I love how he said that. One of the things that we see with Joseph is that God blesses Potiphar for Joseph's sake. God blesses Potiphar for Joseph's sake. We see that Joseph is an overseer of the house and that all that Potiphar has is under Joseph's authority. And, and it's so much so that, that Potiphar can just like chill out. He can just kind of, he, he doesn't even have to think about it. He's like, no, Joseph's got it. He's a good guy. He's loyal. He's, he's going to handle it. He is, he, is, uh, he is someone who's worthy of my trust. So I'm just going to allow him to just kind of do his thing. Which is, which is really neat because you see God blessing Joseph, but also blessing Potiphar through Joseph. You know, if you were to go to my house, and if you were to stand on my, in the, the road right in front of my house, to the far right of my property, there are two trees. I have no idea what kinds of trees they are. I know that they, that they bloom differently, two different colors. But, but if you were to go look at those trees, even today, you would see that there are two trees that are, that are intertwined. And it's really strange, and one would assume, and this is what I assume, that originally that there was a tree that was planted there, whatever the tree is. There was a tree that was planted there. And no one would intentionally plant another tree so close to that other tree, especially when it's, it's going to be a full-grown tree. But one of the really cool things is, assuming so, that one tree was planted there, and it started to grow. And then somewhere along the way, a seed fell next to that original tree. 
And then that seed started, the seed started to grow right next to the other tree. And now you see both of them have developed into trees, and they're, they've grown together in such a way to where they're flourishing. One was planted intentionally, one unintentionally, but they grew, both are growing together. Sometimes we can be in a place that where we are just not comfortable with. We can be in a place we don't even want to be. And we can just tune out that what maybe God is doing in that season, in that time. But we need to tune in to say, what, God, what are you doing in this time? Because we can be so inundated with, with the belief that this just wasted, that I'm just here, it's just by fluke, it's by happenstance, like the seed that was accidentally or just somehow uh, just was dropped and then grown right next to the other tree. Seems like an accident. It's not an accident. It's not an accident that you're in the workplace that you're in. It's not an accident that you share a cubicle with that person you share a cubicle with. It's not an accident that you share that workspace with those particular people in this season. It's not an accident that we're all going through these things that we're going through right now. It's not an accident. We need to simply bloom and grow where we're planted. That's what Joseph's doing. He's just simply using the situation that he's in, and he's flourishing. There's some interesting facts here along the way, and then we're going to uh, drill down into Joseph's temptation. But there's some interesting things so we understand the time frame of, of all that's happening with Joseph. So it says, Pharaoh left all that he had in Joseph's hand. Clearly, Joseph rose to the top. But it took a while for this to happen. He was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. He was 30 when Pharaoh promoted him. And he had been in prison for two years before that. So he was in Potiphar's house for 11 years. He was in, in Potiphar's house for 11 years. That seems like a long time. It seems like Joseph would have just given up. But yet, his faithfulness over time not only was bearing, bearing fruit in his own life, but also other people were flourishing because of his influence. In this passage, in verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. This, this word defining Joseph is only referenced two other times. And it's, it's referenced of David in 1 Samuel 16, 12, and also Absalom, David's son, in 2 Samuel 14, 25. So now only three references that it says this uh, about them. And let, let me tell you something that's very telling. Not even Jesus was referred to in this way. As a matter of fact, quite the contrary with Jesus. Jesus was referred to like this in Isaiah 53, 2 and 3. It says this, that Jesus... Had, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. There was nothing about his physical appearance that would draw people to him. But yet people were drawn to him. People were drawn to him. They went to him in droves. 
the crowds, the thousands gathered around him. There was something so compelling about Jesus that the crowds gathered around him, but it would be some of those same crowds who would turn on him. And they would be going from uh, Passover week saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, to then yelling, crucify, crucify. And Jesus was one who ultimately would be one they would, that people would turn their back on. No beauty, no majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men for us. For us. So that we could live lives that are infused with the Spirit of God. So that we could live lives connected with God the Father. So we could live lives with such a high level of morality that's been informed by the Word of God as we live under the Word and under the authority of God. This is how Joseph made it through. It says in verse 7 and verse 11 of the passage, this, this outright bold woman, she just says, Come to bed with me. She's just out front. She's a married woman, and she just just jumps out there and says this. And I'm sure some of this is because Joseph was, was an attractive guy. But she was a married woman. You see, this temptation that Joseph is enduring is the same temptation we all face from time to time. Satan wants you to think that your temptation is unique. It's just you. And that no one could possibly understand what's going on. So you dare not talk about it. But God knows exactly what's going on. His word speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 10.13. This is what the word says. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. No temptation is seized you of, other than what is common to man, that we all endure these temptations. And it says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Today, what I want to give to you is the way out. I want to help you to be able to have a more faithful approach when it comes to your morality and when it comes to your sexual ethics. What I want to do is is guide this discussion with the Word of God and what Joseph did, very practical ways that, that he shows faithfulness. You see, Joseph showed remarkable faithfulness towards God, Potiphar, and himself by resisting this temptation for so long, potentially and maybe even up to 11 years. Joseph's faithfulness to God directly impacted his sexual ethics. I want to drill down on this with some principles. Uh, It's not going to take long to talk about all these. I don't need to go through all the scriptures because I believe they're pretty clear. But ultimately, what we are going to see is how Joseph's faithfulness to God directly impacted his sexual ethics. First thing I want to draw to your attention is this. Joseph's faith drove his behavior. Joseph's faith drove his behavior. 
Joseph was connected with God. It says the Lord was with him, and the Lord gave him success with what he was doing. His faith drove his behavior. Another thing is Joseph kept busy. Joseph kept busy. He was, he was busy doing the things that he was supposed to. He was not idle. He was busy. Additionally, Joseph was careful to never be alone with this temptation. Anytime that he, he could have or would have been alone with her, he avoided it. Except the one time that he couldn't and noticed that Potiphar's wife jumped on that opportunity. Joseph called the act what it was, sin. As a matter of fact, he called it a great wickedness and sin against God. Our modern culture wants to call sin by other names. They don't want to call sin, sin. Because if you call sin, sin, then that means that, th that every person has to identify with being a sinner. And everyone is indeed a sinner. Just some are saved by the grace of God. Everyone is a sinner. Some have been saved by their sin and are being saved from their sin because of the finished work of Jesus and the atoning work of the cross. But we have to call sin, sin. Our modern culture wants to call sin by other names like these. Hostility and temper are just self-expression. Pride is, well, that's just self-esteem. Gluttony, that's just the good life. Covetousness is just trying to get ahead. Perversion is just an alternative lifestyle. And adultery, well, that's just a cry for help in a bad marriage. See, our modern culture wants to call sin something else. But we need to get back to what Joseph said about it. And he asks this question. He says, how then could I do such a wicked thing in sin against God? He calls sin wickedness and a violation against God. That is his moral standard that when he sins, when he, he does not live in accordance with what God would have for him, then he declared that as being a sin. This is his moral standard, a Christian moral standard as what we would have today. Another thing, Joseph knew how greatly his sin would affect others. Again, it's, it's common in our day to want to just kind of treat sin as if it's not really going to affect anyone. It's just, it's just something I do. It only affects me, and it only affects me for a little while. And yet, that's just simply not true. Sin has a compounding effect. Sin is destructive. Sin is a wildfire with a strong wind. Sin, in and of itself, has no way to extinguish itself. It is only through the Holy Spirit of God can that sin be extinguished in our lives so it doesn't ravage us and ravage our relationships and ravage our peace and ravage our hope and ravage our families. Joseph knew that his sin was a sin against God. You see, one might justify sinning against another person if we deemed it necessary or we deemed it worthwhile because maybe we were mad at them. 
But not Joseph. He knew that it was a sin against God. Again, this is his moral standard because he says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And lastly, Joseph just said no, and he refused. He just said no. He says, I'm not going to live like that. I'm not going to sin against God. I'm not going to sin against Potiphar. I'm not going to sin against me. I'm not, and he wasn't going to sin against Potiphar's wife. This is his moral basis. Joseph is a man who's in a difficult situation. An unthinkable situation. Abandoned by his brothers. Enslaved by some enemies. Gets sold again to be enslaved by some other enemies. But yes, somewhere along the way, he had faith. And he shown worthy of faith. And he was living in a trustworthy way. His morals were based on the truth of God and not his, his sexual impulse. His morals in his workplace and the way that he, he worked, had a great theology of work, was one of of flourishing because he honored God in it. And then God allowed him to flourish and then also allowed other people to flourish who were actually in a greater or who were in authority over him. And if you were to to follow, and I invite you to just follow the storyline from here on out and look at how God used Joseph. And Joseph is is just one of those people you see just plot the timeline of Joseph's life and eventually Joseph would be reunited with his family. Joseph would be, he would be a hero in the story. Eventually things would turn out great for Joseph, but in this moment, he's still a slave. We need to do what I think is clear to see that, that Joseph did in this passage. We need to make trust in God your motivation. Make temptation your adversary. Make truth your ally. And make faithfulness your testimony. When we do this, not only is this the pathway to human flourishing, this is also a way for you to live so connected to God that other people will notice that you, when you have a great theology of work that's rooted and connected to Christ, that whatever you do, you don't do it for men, but you do it for the glory of God. When you do that, other people will notice. People who say they're Christians and who are not Christians, they'll be exposed for not being Christians. They just will. Uh, when you live in that, in that way, people who are not Christians will notice the fact that you are clearly different. And I just believe that God still gives favor in situations like that. Situations just like Joseph found himself in. So this week, make faithfulness your testimony. Make faithfulness your testimony. Start living more in alignment with the Word of God. 
Maybe this, the pathway forward is the pathway backward for you. Maybe you're going in your own direction, and that's a direction that just simply needs to change. And you need a change of heart, you need a change of direction, and you need to repent. And maybe your morality has been based off, this is just how I feel, or this is what I think, and not what God's Word says. If you found yourself in that situation where you're just operating on your own passions, your own desires, your own level of truth, you are on dangerous, just on a dangerous, dangerous path. And the best thing that I can tell you as your pastor is to repent. God will kindly allow you to repent. If you're watching this message, you're listening to this message, God will give you the opportunity to repent. For you to be refreshed, for you to be new, so that your morality can be based off of the Word of God. If you don't know Jesus, and you're just hearing all this for the first time, and you're like, how in the world does Joseph guy? And man, if you've stuck with this message so far, and all the way into uh, where we are right now, I just want you to know, God loves you. Uh, he, he offers a, a fatherly love. And the way to receive that fatherly love is by, by the confession of your sin and by repenting of that sin. By admitting to, to Jesus that you're a Savior and you also recognize that Jesus died for you on the cross. Died to take away your sins. Died to, to help make you a new person. Died so that you could actually live. So that you could flourish. So that you could have hope and you could have peace and you could have a future beyond what you can even imagine. These are difficult days. These are days that call for faithfulness. These are days that call for love. If you are someone who is uh, now, maybe you, you're a follower of Jesus and you've stumbled uh, in your life and you're like, I, I think I'm off course. The way forward is the way back. It's repentance. I want to thank you so much for listening today and attending today and hopefully get to see you next weekend and where we can continue on in this series. I do want to tell you this, though, before we close. On the 31st of January, that's two Sundays from this Sunday, when you're viewing this message, uh, two Sundays from now, we're actually going to be going down to one service, one service. So we are no longer going to have the 915 and the 11. We're simply going to have one service, and we're going to have coffee and community from at 10 o'clock to 1030, and then our main worship service will begin at 1030. So 10 o'clock, coffee and community, 10.30 worship time. Minister team leaders know this. We will have uh, DBC kids and everything else like we normally do. And that will happen again in two weeks from when you're watching this. And January 31st, we'll go down to one service. Thank you so much for uh, just being here today and connecting today. God bless you.